Let's open our Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 62. Tonight we're going to cover three chapters, 62 through 64. And uh, we're in some of the most glorious ground that you'll ever find in the Word of God. Isaiah chapter 62, beginning at verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Notice here in the very opening line of the chapter, Isaiah prophesies from a time when Jerusalem was still a functioning city, but it was spiritually corrupt. Here he's prophesying from that time, but forward to a time, to a time when Jerusalem was desolate because she'd been conquered by the Babylonians. And prophetically, he speaks comfort and assurance to her downcast and discouraged citizens. The Lord assures them, and look at it there in verse 1. He says, for Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness. God assures them that he will not rest until Jerusalem is restored in a shining righteousness. You know, God doesn't rest until his work is done. Until his work is done, he doesn't back off. He doesn't stop. God's a finisher. From beginning to end, he finished what he begins. Therefore, in the creation of the world, it wasn't until everything was created, after the six days of creation, that God rested. Furthermore, we also know that when Jesus Christ finished the work of our redemption, finished every work of atonement that would ever be necessary in all of creation, then he ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God the Father, sitting being a posture of rest. So it's instructive for us to know when God rests, but also when he does not rest. And he will not rest when his people are in a terrible place. He will not rest when his people are discouraged and downcast. He won't rest until righteousness goes forth as brightness. Now, we should understand that so much of the prophecy of these three chapters that we're going to consider is directed towards Zion and Jerusalem. You notice that there in verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest. Zion is the name of the geographical place, the hills on which Jerusalem is built. It's just another way of saying Jerusalem. Basically, God's saying that, that this city represents the focus of his work. And if it's not settled, if it's not at rest, if it's not in a place of righteousness that's shining forth, God will not rest. He's like the, the customer in the restaurant who's not going to back off with the waiter until he gets what he wants. That's what he means there in verse 1. I will not hold my peace. Maybe other people in the restaurant, they're saying, well, quiet down, be quiet. No, I don't like the service. I don't like the food. Things aren't set right. I'm not going to be at peace. I'm not going to rest. That's God's attitude of heart, not just towards the city of Jerusalem, not just towards the region of Zion, but that's God's heart towards his people. You see, although God is concerned with that city as an actual material place, 
as an actual piece of real estate. Zion and Jerusalem also stand as representations of Israel, and in even more a general sense, as a representation of all God's people. Now notice this, verse 2, the Gentiles shall see your righteousness. When God lifts up Zion, the nations see it and are brought to trust in the Lord themselves. In other words, the work God would do for Jerusalem was intended to have an effect for more than just Jerusalem. It was intended to extend to the Gentiles and unto, if you notice that there in verse 2, and all kings your glory. Friends, when God does a work in you, it's never just for you. It's for other people also. He wants to shine his light not just to you, but through you. This was something Israel forgot in the days of Jesus. In the days of Jesus, Israel considered themselves to be the end of God's work. God, just pour your work into us. Just pour your work into us. They didn't realize that God had set Israel in that place so that he could pour his work into them, that they could shine it forth to the Gentiles. But the attitude of many Jewish people, not all certainly, but many Jewish people, especially some prominent rabbis in Jesus' day, was the attitude of, well, the, the Gentiles are just destined for hell anyway. Let them go there. They had lost sight of the fact that God wants us to be channels of his power, channels of his work. He wants his work to flow through us, not just to us. Now, if you go to Israel today, and it was the same way in ancient times, there are two significant bodies of water. There is the Sea of Galilee, and there's the Dead Sea. And both of them are notable on a map. You can see them both laid out pretty clearly. One of them is full of life. Fish and all kinds of plant life and everything else teems forth from the Sea of Galilee. The Dead Sea is, well, it's dead. It doesn't have any life in it. If you ever go to Israel and have the opportunity to go and, and float in the Dead Sea, you can do it. You float very well there. It has such a high chemical content in it. It's got a lot of solids in it. You're very buoyant in there, but you don't want to get any of it in your eyes or any of it on your mouth. It'll burn. There's no life in the Dead Sea. Now, the, the difference between these two bodies of water is simple. The Jordan River flows into both of them. But the only difference is the Jordan River also flows out of the Sea of Galilee. It doesn't flow out of the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee is a channel. It, it takes the water from the Jordan River and then it sends it on its way. It, it's a through kind of thing. The, the Jordan River just flows into the Dead Sea and it ends. So it's become stagnant and dead. If there's some stagnant place in your life? Is there some death in your life? Maybe it's because you, you've been crying out to God, but you've been crying out to God, Lord, just bless me, just touch me, instead of looking at yourself to be a channel through which the Lord can bless other people. That's what he wanted to reinforce here in this prophecy. There's something else precious in here, if you notice in verse 2. In the middle of it, it says, you shall be called by a new name. Isn't that precious? I mean, Jerusalem will be so transformed that she'll be called by a new name. And since the Lord is the author of the transformation, he's also the author of the new name. It says there in verse 2, you shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. 
And the thought is extended later on in the chapter, as we'll see in just a few moments, but it's also extended into the book of Revelation, isn't it? In passages like Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, and Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, in heaven, we're told that we receive a new name from God. Then our transformation is complete. We're so different that it's appropriate to give us a new name. It's a new name that'll match our completely transformed new nature. Something else remarkable there, if you notice in verse 3, it says, You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Jerusalem will be so special to God that he'll regard it as a crown of glory. Now, please follow along with this. We may be familiar with the idea that we're going to receive a crown, right? The Bible speaks about that in many different passages, especially in the New Testament. So we're familiar with that idea. We're going to receive a crown in heaven. But it is deeper and even more wonderful to consider that we will be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord. In other words, you might ask yourself, well, we receive a crown in heaven, but what about the Lord? Doesn't he get a crown? And God says, yes, I get a crown. You're it. You are my crown. You are my reward. Friends, if we really understood what that meant, it'd take our breath away. That's how precious you are to God. You are his prize. I mean, he's in it for you. You're the reward. You're the payoff. You're the jackpot for God in all of this. You're the reason why he's doing it all. You are his crown. Look at it again in verse 3. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. This is no little you know, Burger King crown made out of cardboard. This is, as it says in verse 3, a crown of glory, a royal diadem. Paul uses a similar twist on a familiar idea in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 8, where he says that the believer should understand, listen carefully, What are the riches of the glory of God's inheritance in the saints? And his idea there isn't of our inheritance in the Lord, but of his inheritance in us. Do you understand, friends, that we often only have a very superficial understanding of how precious we are to God? If we really understood it, as I said, it it would take our breath away. Verse 4. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land any more be termed desolate. But you shall be called Hephizabah, and your hand Beulah. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your son shall marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Jerusalem knew what it was like to be forsaken. They knew what it was like to suffer defeat and desolation. They knew those names. Maybe those names could apply to your life in some place. There's some memorable place where you could write over your life forsaken. Some memorable place where you could write over your life, as it says there in verse 4, I'm desolate. Friends, you may be able to say that of your life, but God wants to change that. He wants to give you two new names, not forsaken, not desolate. He wants to give you the name 
Hephzibah. How about that name for you? You're not finding that in the baby books, are you? Actually, it's a very precious name. That name means, my delight is in her. It speaks of how God delights in Jerusalem, how God delights in his people. But that's not all. He'll also name them Beulah. There will come a day when Zion and God's people will know the unbroken love and presence of God as a wife should know the presence and the love of her husband because Beulah means married. So he uses this very precious picture that's repeated many times in the Bible on into the book of Revelation, speaking here of this great, close, intimate fellowship with God. And he goes on and he says, if you notice it here, verse 5, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Zion and God's people will know how much the Lord loves them. You know, the the, the love of the Lord is far more than an obligation type of love. Instead, notice it there in verse 5, He will rejoice over you. Is there anybody here tonight, you're burdened with the feeling that God just kind of barely, barely tolerates you. And He loves you. But it's that obligation kind of love. It's a grudging acceptance. That's not the Lord's heart towards you at all. He rejoices over you. Zion and God's people will know how much the Lord loves them on that day. The same idea is very beautifully communicated in one of the more obscure prophets of the Bible, the prophet Zephaniah. In Zephaniah 3.17, the prophet says, The Lord your God in your midst... The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. That's how much the Lord loves you. He'll sing over you. He'll rejoice over you. No wonder Paul made it a special prayer of his in the book of Ephesians that we would somehow know and be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. To have God rejoice over you. To have God sing over you. That's love. Verse 6, he goes on and speaks of the protection that he'll give to Zion. I've set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem, who shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent and give him no rest until he establishes and until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. That the Lord has sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength. Surely I will no longer give your grain to be food for your enemies. And the sons of the foreigner shall not drink your new wine for which you have labored, but those who have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord. Those who have brought it together shall drink it in my holy courts. Notice what the Lord says. The Lord here speaks of the protection over Jerusalem. And what's the protection? Well, believe it or not, the protection is praying people. That's the watchman. Did you see it there in verse 6? I've set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. Because God loves and rejoices over Zion, he'll protect them. And though they were conquered before by the Babylonians, the day's going to come when God will make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. And the watchmen have a constant duty. Look at it there in verse 6. They shall never hold their peace day or night. In other words, they're always talking. They're never going to stop talking. What are they going to talk about? Look at it here in verse 6. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent 
and give him no rest till he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. You get it there? You see what the watchmen are doing? They will not let God rest until he finishes his work. That's remarkable, my friends. You see, the watchmen are not critics. They're prayer warriors. And they constantly pray. They give God no rest until God's people and God's city are restored. You know, there are times when God is restless, as we saw before, right? Things aren't set right. God isn't going to rest. He wants that same heart in his people. And God invites you, give me no rest, he says, until this is changed. Give me no rest until my people and my city, the community of God's people, is in the place where it should be. Now, I don't suppose any of us ever came up to a homeless fellow panhandling outside of a market, and we said, Now, give me no rest until I give you what you need. We didn't go up to him and say, whenever you see me coming in the store, you ask me for a few bucks. If I don't give you one, run after me. Call me all the way down the street. Follow me all the way to the car. If that doesn't succeed, I want you to grab onto me and don't let me go until I help you. We'd never say that, right? But you know, that's what God says to you. God says, I want you to beg me. I want you to ask me. Don't give me any rest until I say. He says, press upon me. Urge me. Lay hold on my strength. Wrestle with me, God says. That's what it means. Give him no rest till he establishes. And the Lord's going to do it. He's going to finish it. Look at it there. Verse 8. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength. That's how sure he's going to make it. No more will Jerusalem be plundered by those who would steal her grain or new wine. Instead, those who gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord. So now the way is prepared for people to come to Jerusalem. Look at it here in verse 10. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, take up the stones or take out the stones, lift up a banner for the peoples. Isaiah prophetically looks forward to the time when the Lord will fulfill these promises. And since his salvation is coming, they've got to prepare the way for the people. They need to build up the highway so there's a smooth road without obstacles. And people are ready to return to Jerusalem. They're ready to receive the salvation of the Lord. You know, I think a lot of times the Lord says that way. He, he says, listen, uh, here comes my promise to be fulfilled. Now go, you, you build up a highway so that people can come to it. Remove the obstacles. Sometimes we put unnecessary obstacles in the way of people who want to come to the Lord. Now, I could paint some extreme examples. Let's say you have the first church of the necktie. And if you really want to serve the Lord, if you really want to be a Christian, you've got to wear a necktie to church. I think it's wonderful if people want to dress up, but it should be of their own heart. It should be of their own choice. And here comes somebody, and they come into that church, and they say, well, if this is what being a Christian is all about, I don't want any part of it. I don't like neckties. You see what that church has done. They put an unnecessary obstacle in the way of that person. Get it out of the way. How about it when you're obnoxious with other people about opinions that you have that really aren't central to the gospel? I'm not saying you shouldn't have opinions. I'm just saying you shouldn't be obnoxious about them. 
When you are obnoxious about them, you've just put an unnecessary hindrance in the way of that person coming to Jesus Christ. Get it out of the way. Build up a road over it. Prepare the way for the people. Build up. Build up the highway. Get out the obstacles. Take out the stones, he says. And then notice there at the end of verse 10, lift up a banner for the peoples. Not only must the way be prepared, but it also must be marked by a banner for the peoples. Not only must they be able to come, but they also need to be attracted to come. Look, here's the way it's prepared for you, but there's the banner. You can see where to come, so come. Lift up that banner for the peoples. Now the Messiah is going to come to Israel. Look at it here, verse 11. Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world, say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. You see, the daughter of Zion can hear now that their salvation is coming. The way has been prepared. It's been marked. Now is the time for the Lord's salvation and his Savior to emerge and to come to Zion. Notice here, the Savior came to Zion, but not only to Zion. It says there, indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world this great news, right? He came to Zion, but not only to Zion. And when he comes, did you notice it there? His reward is with him. One of the most marvelous things about the book of Revelation is that it is a book so deeply steeped in the Old Testament. All over the place in the Old Testament, you'll find allusions and quotations to Old Testament passages. Let me read to you Revelation 22, 12. Jesus says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. You know he's quoting this passage from the book of Isaiah, don't you? When the Lord comes, when he appears, he's going to bring a reward for our work. Some will have very little reward. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says that some will have no reward. None. He describes these people as people who are saved, but it's through the fire. God's searching fires of discernment and assessment run through the accomplishments of their life, and there's nothing eternal there. There was nothing done for the glory of God. Oh, it might have been done for the glory of a church. It might have been done for the glory of a man, but it wasn't done for the glory of God. And everything's burnt up, which won't last. It's gone. It's ashes. Some people will have nothing to bring before God on that day when Jesus comes and he brings his reward with him. Ah, but there's many. There's many for whom those fires will pass through and some things will burn up. Some things will be turned to ashes, but there will be much that will remain and they will be rewarded accordingly. Think about it, friends. He's coming and his reward is with him. That should make every one of us think, I better get busy. And I better get busy for the glory of God. He's coming and his reward is with him. The Lord is going to redeem and change. And look, they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Now look, as this theme of the coming of the Lord continues on into chapter 63, he says, who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, this one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. 
Well, there's a question and an answer in verse 1. It's almost as if one of these watchmen sees somebody coming. And there they are coming from the direction of Edom, coming from the direction of Basra. By the way, Edom was one of Israel's close neighbors, one of Israel's neighbors who despised them and and rejoiced when uh, Judah or Israel was crushed. And so they're set there as a a perfect example of the enemies of God's people there. And Basra was the capital city of, of Edom. And so there he is coming from the direction of Edom. And as they look at him, look at it here, verse 1, with dyed garments from Basra. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Dyed garments, isn't that great? Boy, an attractive costume this one's wearing. But look at it here, if you notice here, later on in verse 2, it tells us what they're dyed with. Blood. Red blood. So red, it looks as if wine may have been spilt upon the garments You see, Basra is not only the name of a city, it also means something. The name means grape gathering. It has to do with the vintage and the crushing of grapes. So here, as the Lord comes, he's glorious in his apparel. He's traveling in the greatness of his strength. And his garments are stained with blood so red, it looks as if it could be wine. Say, who is this? Look at the end of verse 1. I who speak in righteousness mighty to save. This is the Lord's reply to the question in the prophecy. He identifies himself by what he says. He says, I speak in righteousness, but he also identifies himself by what he does. He's mighty to save. Even in the midst of judgment, in his glory, and his strength, God wants men to know that he's mighty to save. He's not only mighty to judge, friends, he's mighty to save too. So look at the second question here in verse 2. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I've trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was there with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. Wow. That's a passionate expression of judgment. You see the scene here, don't you? The watchman asks a second question. First, who are you? Secondly, why is your apparel red? The Lord answers, I have trodden the winepress alone. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. When is this fulfilled? Let me read to you Revelation chapter 19, verses 13 and 15. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron, and he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God. It's Jesus Christ coming. When Jesus Christ returns to this earth, his garments will be stained in blood, not the blood of his redemption. That was shed thousands of years ago. It'll be stained in the blood of his enemies. And do you see the picture here? 
the picture is if is if he's been stepping on grapes and it's splashed up and that's why it's so bloody it's a frightening thought isn't it something sobering for the enemies of the lord to consider how much resistance does the grape offer to the foot of the one who's stepping on it not a whole lot does it maybe for a microsecond the shell of that grape resists the, the, the pressure from the person stepping on it. But after that microsecond, it's squish. It's gone. That's how much resistance those enemies of the Lord offer to him in judgment. But I want you to notice something. Look at verse 3. There's a very striking phrase. It starts off the verse. This is Jesus Christ speaking prophetically. I have trodden the winepress alone. Jesus Christ looks at you tonight and he speaks into your heart and he says, I want you to work with me. One of the most precious titles Paul the Apostle ever spoke was he said he called us co-laborers with Christ. We're fellow workers with Jesus Christ. Jesus wants us to work together with him but not in everything. There are a few specific aspects of the work of Jesus Christ that he looks at you and I and says, no, you'll have no part of this. I'm doing it alone. Friends, this work of judgment belongs to Jesus Christ and he alone. Though we will be part of the heavenly armies that accompany Jesus, I have to say that it seems that we're just there as spectators, my friends. The work of judgment belongs to him alone. And the point is even emphasized by Isaiah. Look at these passages in here in these verses. He says, from the peoples, no one was with me. My own arm brought salvation for me and my own fury. It sustained me. He didn't need help from anybody. In God's great plan of the ages, Jesus will accomplish two things alone. First, he atones for our sin alone. He hung on the cross, bearing the weight of all our guilt alone. No one was with him. Secondly, he judges the world alone. God does not need us to execute his ultimate judgment. We leave that to him. Also another striking phrase in here, it begins verse 4. Look at that with me, please. He says, For the day of vengeance is in my heart. You almost don't want to think of Jesus saying that, do you? We tend to think, well, Jesus, I mean, if you're going to do your vengeance, if you're going to work your judgment, you shouldn't have it in your heart. You shouldn't want to do it. These words prophetically spoken by Jesus, they almost sound foreign to us. We rarely think of vengeance being in the heart of Jesus. But listen to what Jesus said in John 5.22. He says, The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Friends, if there's judgment to be done, Jesus Christ is going to do it. So vengeance is in his heart. But why? I mean, it sounds so strange. Well, he explains it. Look at here in verse 4. We, we stopped reading at the comma. Let's continue on. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. You see, in this, Isaiah 
prophetically explains why the Messiah can say, vengeance is in my heart. It isn't because God loves punishing sinners, but he does love vindicating his redeemed. Friends, the year of my redeemed has come. So it's time for those who are not his redeemed to bear vengeance. Can we also notice the comparison there? How long is the time of vengeance? A day. How long is the time of the redeemed? It's a year. Now, both of them are just poetic words, right? He means a time. He means a season. The the judgment of the wicked is going to last more than one day. The, the, The glory of the redeemed is going to last more than one year. Thank you, Lord. But you see, he picks those pictures to, to illustrate something, doesn't he? That the judgment of God really passes, relatively speaking, in a moment. Now, beginning with verse 7, we come into a new section that's going to take us through all the way to the end of chapter 64. And actually, it's going to connect with chapter 65, which we'll consider next week. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 7, begins a passionate prayer. It's from the mouth of Isaiah, but he seems to speak from the heart of one of the Babylonian exiles who cries out to God for restoration. It's one of the more spectacular prayers in the Bible. Now, you may remember some great prayers in the Bible. The prayer of Nehemiah, the prayer of Daniel, the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. Many wonderful prayers in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever noticed this marvelous, marvelous prayer beginning at Isaiah chapter 63, verse 7. Look, as all the great prayers in the Bible begins, it begins with praise. Verse 7, I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old Moses and his people, saying, Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with a shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them and who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm dividing the waters before them? to make for himself an everlasting name who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble. As a beast goes down into the valley and the spirit of the Lord causes him to rest, so you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. Friends, that's just the introduction to this prayer. See here, he begins by mentioning the loving kindnesses of the Lord. That word, loving kindnesses, it translates the Hebrew word hesed. And that Hebrew word hesed is love that is faithful to the covenant. It's also steadfast love. It's probably the closest equivalent we have in the Hebrew language for the great Greek word agape. He mentions the great loving kindnesses of the Lord. And then he goes on and he says, this is a striking phrase in verse 9. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. 
Isaiah knows the nature of God, that in the afflictions of his people, he also is afflicted. God is not a dispassionate, unfeeling observer when his people suffer. He suffers with them when they're afflicted. I remember seeing an old twilight zone where the whole thing was built around the effect that these people were really living like in a diorama and a, and a play built by these huge superior beings who looked down upon them and watched. At the end of the, the half hour, you know, the, the house lifts up and one of these great big aliens is there and, and these people are just there as playthings. Sometimes people think that that's kind of what God is like. This big man who looks down on us from the sky and he just kind of observes, maybe in a scientific way, maybe with a vague passing interest, but when those People hurt. He doesn't really hurt, not in a great way. That's not it. Verse 9, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. Let me say this also, that if we take this in its most immediate context, the there of verse 9 refers to the people of Israel. Now, if in all of the Jewish people's affliction, the Lord God is afflicted also. It's another reason why anti-Semitism is so wicked. When the Jewish people are persecuted and afflicted, the Lord is afflicted also. And how tragic it is that for centuries, institutional Christianity, pretending to act in the name of Jesus, afflicted the Lord himself by persecuting the Jewish people. But the Lord loved them. And drawing on the imagery from the book of Exodus and this great escape from Egypt, Isaiah prophetically weaves into his prayer the the pictures of God's deliverance then. And basically, I'll give you the, the idea here is, Lord, you did it back then in the days of Exodus. Remember when you did that, Lord? Maybe you can do it again for us now. So he continues on in verse 15 where he says, Look down from heaven. And see your glorious habitat, and see from your habitations, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart and your mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Do, Do you get this, friends? The prophet speaks honest words in the mouth of the praying one. Now, you might say you shouldn't pray a prayer like this. You shouldn't say, God, Lord, where are you? Where's your zeal? Where's your strength? Come on, Lord. Let's see some of it. I need it in my life. Sometimes it feels to us, though, that the zeal and the strength are far away, and when we feel like that, we should do just what this praying one did, cry out to God. So he says, verse 16, Doubtless you are our father, Though Abraham was ignorant of us, and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from everlasting is your name. O Lord, you have made us stray from your way, or excuse me, why have you made us stray from your ways, and harden our heart from you, from your fear? Return for your servant's sake, the tribes of your inheritance. Your holy people have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries has trodden down your sanctuary. We become like those of old, over whom you never ruled, those who were never called by your name. 
The praying one looks at the condition of God's people and cries out in agony. He's saying, God, why have you allowed this? I suppose we could nitpick theologically in verse 17. Oh, Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways? Now, wait a minute. The Lord never made them stray from his ways. Then he says in verse 17, and hardened our heart from your fear. Wait a minute, the Lord never hardened their heart from your fear. Don't you see he's pouring out his feelings before God? Lord, you're in charge of everything. I'm going to respect your sovereignty. God, why? Why? This is the passionate cry of someone in pain. That The praying one isn't necessarily accurate in all his theology, but he's an expert in expressing the pain of the human heart. Cries out this way. Look at it here, verse 1 of chapter 64. It continues. It says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as the fire burns brushwood and causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any gods besides you, who acts for the one who waits for him. You see the prayer of the remnant here, the praying one, crying out to God, oh, that you would rend the heavens, God, that you would rip apart the sky and come down and show yourself strong for us. This is an Old Testament version of the prayer in the book of Revelation, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord, set it right. Lord, look at our condition. And then he remembers back again in the days of Exodus, where he says, The mountains shook at your presence. That The praying one remembers God's great work of Israel in the days of the Exodus. So, so here he says, Lord, you shook Mount Sinai when you came down upon it. Shake my world now, God. Come down, let me see your presence. Lord, we know at the end of verse 4, you act for the one who waits for him. Lord, I know I'm waiting for you. I know I'm going to see you act on my behalf. What an important job it is to wait on the Lord. To wait for him. Many times we'd rather work than wait. Many times we're attracted more to the legalism of working than the holiness of waiting. A lot of people think waiting for the Lord is foolish dreaming. Come on, man, you want it to happen? Come on, let's go, make it happen. No, no, we wait. He acts for the one who waits for him. Now, we come to the next great section in this prayer. The, the, the beginning part was the praise. The, the second part was the, the pain, right? The, the, uh, God, do something, please. Where are you, God? Now comes the sober analysis. Look at verse 5. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. Right? Oh, Lord, you bless the one who waits for him. You, you meet the one who rejoices and does right. Lord, the one who remembers you in your ways. Yeah, you save him. Yes, God. You are indeed angry, For we have sinned in these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. 
You see, the, the praying one is asking the question, what kind of man does the Lord answer in prayer? Now, that's a good question, isn't it? How many people have you heard say, oh man, I pray every day? You know they do. Lord, I pray that this lotto ticket will be the one. Lord, I pray that I can make it to work on time without getting a speed ticket today. They pray every day. Does God hear every one of those prayers? No. God hears the prayers of some, and he does not regard the prayers of others, not in every circumstance. So what kind of man does the Lord answer in prayer? Well, the one who waits for the Lord, right? We saw that in the previous verse. What else about this man? Look at verse 5. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness. Okay, great. Wait for the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, do righteousness, and then next, who remembers you in your ways. Isn't that great? Be a righteous, upstanding man, and the Lord will answer you in prayer. Well, there you go. Isn't that easy? But there's a problem there, right? Look at verse 5. For we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. The praying one knows that God only answers the prayers of the righteous man, yet it isn't the righteous man who needs to be saved from the disaster he's brought on himself. It's a catch-22, isn't it? I like how the NIV translates that phrase, and we need to be saved. It translates it here as, how then can we be saved? I mean, that's the idea. (laughs) Lord, okay, I got it figured out, God. Uh, You answer the prayers of a righteous man. I'm in trouble, Lord, but why am I in trouble? I'm in trouble because I'm not a righteous man, so I'll call out to you, but what good will that do? Because you only hear the prayers of a righteous man. That's not enough. Praying one goes on to eloquently describe our state of sin. You have the stomach for this here, verse 6. We all are like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you, for you've hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. What does our sin do to us? First, it makes us an unclean thing. Do you know what that means? In the Jewish ceremonial law, to be unclean meant that you were excluded from the presence and the worship of the Lord. If a person was unclean, he couldn't go up to the house of the Lord. He couldn't offer sacrifice. God would accept nothing from his hands. He was an outcast and an alien from God so long as he was unclean. And Isaiah says, that's me. I'm unclean. And then he says, all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. The good we may try to do is unacceptable and unclean before the Lord. Because we're all an unclean thing, even the good we do is polluted. I want you to think about this, friends. If our righteousnesses are so bad, what must our unrighteousnesses be? Clean, like filthy rags. 
It says, we all fade as a leaf. Our sinful condition has made us weak and unstable. No lasting power before God. And what's worse, look at it there, the next line in verse 6, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Because of our sin, because of our uncleanness, we have no power to stand against temptation. Our sins carry us along like a hurricane wind. And there's no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. Even in our unclean, unstable condition, we didn't seek the Lord the way that we should. We were lazy and complacent before the Lord. Taken together, this is a fearful description of our fallenness. May I read to you from Charles Spurgeon? In applying the truth of these verses, he says, You must not merely know that you are lost, but you must feel it. Do not be content with simply feeling that it is so, but mourn before God that it is so, and hate yourself that it is so. Do not look upon it as being a misfortune as being your own willful sin. Look upon yourselves, therefore, as being guilty sinners. This is a sobering place where we're left. And that's why it says, if we look here at verse 7, you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. The sinful condition of man brings forth two reactions from God. First, you've hidden your face from us. Fellowship is broken, or at the very least, damaged. Secondly, it says there at the end of verse 7, and you've consumed us because of our iniquities. The Lord consumes us because of our iniquities. Our sinful condition has invited, even demanded, the righteous judgment of God. So what do you do? How do you get out of this one? Pray to the Lord, he'll hear the prayer of a righteous man. Oh good, I'm in trouble. But I'm in trouble because I'm not a righteous man. Then he won't hear my prayer. How do I get out of this one? Well, look at the approach here in verse 8. First, he says, But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are a potter. And all we are are the work of your hands. Do not be furious, O Lord, no remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we all are your people. You see, the praying one's in a desperate place. He needs to, to, the, to have the mercy of God because the justice of God condemns him. And so in his appeal for mercy, he first reminds God, God, you're our father. Lord, please have mercy on us as a loving father. And then he says, we're the clay, you're the potter. Lord, we're like clay in your hands. Deal gently with us. Mold us according to your sovereign mercy. Now, here's the thing. A father is always a father. He can never disown his children. Not really. He can say he does. The child could even uh, pass away. But he's still the father of that child. A father is always a father. And you can also say that a potter cannot disown the pot. He could break it, he could destroy it, but he still made it. It only exists because he made it. You know what this is Isaiah's way of saying? In the midst of all this desperate place, he comes before God and he says, Hey, Lord, look, you're stuck with me, God. You're my father, you're the potter. I'm only here because you made me. 
You're stuck with me, Lord. So let's take it from there. And he says, do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. You know, the praying one asks for mercy on account of time served. It's as if he prayed, Lord, I know you have a right to be furious with me for a while, but don't be furious forever. Don't remember my iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, he says, we all are your people. Lord, we're your people. We're sinners. We deserve judgment, but we're still your people. In a sense, Lord, again, you're stuck with us. Now he says, verses 10 and 11, your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Lord, it's not just us. Look at your holy city. Look at Jerusalem. Look at Zion. Lord, look at this. Look at your holy and beautiful temple. It's burned up with fire. God, do something. If not for our sake, do it for the sake of your temple. But do something, Lord. Then he concludes here in verse 12. Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? Praying one concludes the prayer with a great question. That these things he refers to are not the desperate condition of Jerusalem and the temple. They're the descriptions of our sinful condition. The praying one says, Lord, you know very well our sinful condition, but will you restrain yourself because of these things? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? Lord, please show mercy. Will you always give us what we deserve? Friends, in this problem, in this prayer, the praying one deals with what seems to be an impossible problem. Again, because of our sin, we're in a desperate state and needs the Lord's salvation. But the Lord only answers the prayer of a righteous man. And a righteous man wouldn't be in the place that we're in. So, you know where the ultimate answer is found? In the new covenant, where a righteous man stands in our place and prays for us. Lord, you'll hear the prayer of a righteous man. Jesus, will you pray for me? Jesus, will you usher me into your Father? Jesus, will you stand in my place? And friends, that's the solution to it. No, you're not righteous. And might I say... I know you're a Christian. I know you love the Lord. I know you're walking after him. You're still not righteous enough to pray and have your prayers answered on the basis of your merits. That's why Jesus invited you to pray in his name. When we pray in Jesus' name, he is the righteous man who appeals to God for us. So friends, that's the key here. The Lord will hear a righteous man's prayer. The Lord Jesus, pray for us. Friends, there's been a lot in our study tonight about prayer. Can you take it to heart? Can you go before the Lord about that thing that he's impressed on your heart? Not a selfish thing to consume upon your own desires, but something for the glory of God. And can you go before him and say, Lord, I'm not going to let you rest until you do something with this. Can you come to him? based on the prayer of a righteous man for you. Come and pray in the name of Jesus Christ. That's 
what the Lord invites you to do tonight, every day of your life. Let's pray and ask Him to do it. Father, as I conclude with prayer tonight, I'm very aware, Lord God, very aware that that every one of us are not righteous enough to stand before you and have our prayers answered. But Lord, we can come in the name of Jesus. You gave us that privilege, Lord. And in the name of Jesus, we have bold access before your throne. We're not coming in our own name. We're not coming in our own righteousness. We come in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. For that reason, Lord, we say save, heal, restore us, grow us, build us, Shine your light in us and through us to touch this needy world. Lord God, in the name of Jesus, set our walk right with you. Make us people who praise you, who love you, who follow you. Then, Lord, send us out to touch other lives for your glory. We pray this tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.